you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. On today's episode, Valerie pitched Back to the Future so that we can study the middle of stories. This 1985 film was directed by Robert Zemeckis from a screenplay by Bob Gale. Of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we'd love it if you could leave the show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page and scroll to the bottom. It's that simple. All right, we've got an oldie but a goodie this week, Valerie. So what did you pick for the genres? Yes, it is an oldie but a goodie, isn't it? (laughs) I love this movie. So I think the global genre is an action story, but it's a comedy action story, which is a little different than a dramatic action story. And of course, it's even got the life and death stakes, right? Marty and his siblings. And secondary genre, I think it's a worldview. What about you? Uh, So I had action as well, but I put it down as a clock or a race against time story. Um, And it it won't surprise you when we come to my section today because I focused on the time, <laughs> on the time and how time's represented in the movie. So I was very focused on that. So that's what I came up with. And I agree with the secondary genre. I had worldview as well. Ah, uh, how exciting. We agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Shall we dive into it? We shall. Okay. So cast your minds back a while ago when we were talking about analyzing our favorite movies, it might have started way back with whatever that Star Wars one is that we did. <laughs> um, and I, we talked about the risks that come with analyzing your favorite stories. And I admit that when I first decided to take a closer look at Back to the Future, I was nervous because this is one of my all-time faves and I did not want to see its flaws. I really didn't. <laughs> but it, what happened when I dove into the storytelling is that I ended up with a much deeper appreciation for the film. The writing here is really good. It's solid. Thank God. <laughs> it's a great example of the hero's journey, which is an arc plot story or classic story form. And this is what Joseph Campbell is talking about in The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Now, I have that book. I have read it. I read it once. It went back on my shelf. I haven't taken it out since. I'll be honest. The reason is because I discovered a book called The Writer's Journey uh, by Christopher Vogler. And I think that's a lot better. It's a lot more accessible. It's a much clearer approach to the hero's journey, in my opinion. So that's my go-to reference uh, with The Hero's Journey. But as we record this episode, I'm actually in the process of doing a four-week course with Alex Sokolow who is the writer of Toy Story. And it's all about the hero's journey. No pressure. (laughs) It's terrifying and exciting all at the same time. He's a lovely man. Okay, so with respect to the hero's journey, there are 12 stages. This is all clearly outlined in Vogler's book. 
The sixth stage is called Tests, Allies, and Enemies, and that's what kicks off Act Two, or the middle build of a story. Now, there aren't a whole lot of books that dive into the hero's journey in any great, specific, or detailed way. And those that do seem to skip over this particular stage fairly quickly. But this is a huge part of the story. There's a lot of word count in here. So what do we do? Well, we have to conduct our own research, right? That means we've got to understand the concept. Then we've got to see the concept at work in other people's stories. And then we have to put the concept to work in our own stories. And that's how this whole podcast got started. Because here on the Story Nerd Podcast, we're doing those first two steps together. Yay. Much, much more fun than for me as an extrovert than sitting alone in a room by myself all of the time. <laughs> all right. So the concept of tests, allies, and enemies is not difficult to understand. It's not even very hard to find in other people's work. But holy moly, it can be challenging to pull off in our own novels and our own screenplays. Why? Well, if you think about it, act one of a three-act story, in there, there's a whole lot of boxes that need to be ticked. We have a list of things that we need to accomplish in act one. So we have a guide. There are guardrails to keep act one on track. And because the first act and the last act work together, once you know one of them, you know the other one. But in act two, those guardrails are kind of gone. We don't really have as detailed a list as we do for the opening act. There is a framework, yes, absolutely, but it's highly malleable and the execution will be different for each genre. So what act two is doing is forcing us to be creative, right? It requires us to do the hard work of going into our imaginations and dreaming up the characters and building our worlds and coming up with all the situations that we're gonna to toss our protagonists into. So if we haven't studied other people's work and observed what has or what has not worked in other stories, then the chance of our story going off the rail in the middle build is really, really high. And most people, especially when they're working on the first couple of books in their career, most people do go way out to town in the middle build. It just, the, the story changes totally. So I want you to think about this to just try and understand this concept a little easier. We are the heroes of our own stories, right? And we're on this journey of becoming professional writers. Well, in prescriptive tales, and those are the ones that end positively, the hero has a mentor to show her how this whole thing is done, to guide her way and to set her up for success. Now, in stories where there is no mentor or where the mentor is ignored, the hero doesn't prevail in the end. She fails, and it's a cautionary or what's called a down-ending tale. All right, so what does that have to do with us as, you know, writers on this writer's journey of ours? Well, the writers who have come before us are our mentors. And in Back to the Future, Bob Gale is showing us how to put the storytelling tools to use. Now, is Back to the Future a perfect story? No, there are holes. But you want to know what? 
I have watched this film dozens of times, and I'm being very honest when I say to you I did not see any of the holes until I sat down this week to analyze the episode. And that's about as good as it gets. So before I dive into specifically the middle of Back to the Future, Melanie, did you have anything you wanted to add here? I just want to say that I was like you, that I thought I was worried about, again, analyzing this movie because it is such a good movie and one that brings back lots of happy memories from childhood. And it's wonderful to see Michael J. Fox again on screen. And so I was worried as well, uh, analyzing it. And I, I too found a few plot holes, but did it detract from the movie? I didn't think so. So sometimes, even though things aren't perfect, as long as the big things are right, like you were saying, then generally people will walk away with a good experience of the story that you're trying to tell. And that's really what we're aiming for. We're not aiming for perfection. We are aiming for good or very good. And I think it's something to keep in mind as you're writing that it Things don't have to be perfect to be to work well and to be well received. Here, here. We want to write the best story that we can, but there's but you got to ship your work at some point, right? At some point, you've got to say, I've done everything I can possibly do with the story to this point. I gotta let it go into the world and start working on the next book. And if you can write something as good as Back to the Future on your first book, then please release it into the world because we really do need more stories of this caliber. All right, so let's dive into the middle of Back to the Future. So if there aren't any strict guardrails for Act 2, what are what's a writer to do? <laughs> well, remember, there is still a framework. There are still things that need to be accomplished in the middle build, but we get a whole lot of flexibility about how we pull them off. So let's take a closer look. Oh, now I should mentioned, first of all, that the act breakdown in Back to the Future is, it's standard. It's a 25% for the beginning, 50% for the middle, 25% for the end, which means that the middle build is an hour. And it's really easy to see the act breaks in this movie. So if you're struggling with how to find the act breaks, um, if you need an excuse to watch Back to the Future again, I'm giving it to you right now. <laughs> So Marty crosses the threshold between act one and act two when he goes back in time. As writers, when we're doing this crossing the threshold thing, what we need to do is make it really clear to the audience that the protagonist has changed environment, that they are going into a new, different, extraordinary world, a place where the hero doesn't belong, where he doesn't know anyone, he doesn't know what the rules of the place are or how it works. Now, often the hero goes literally to a different physical location, like you might move cities, for example. But here in Back to the Future, the physical place is actually the same. It's the time that has changed. So there's an obvious difference between 1985 and 1955, and you can see it. Act two ends after the enchantment under the sea dance. The final act begins when Marty meets Doc at the clock and prepares for his jump back to the future. So once the hero has crossed over into the extraordinary world, he enters the sixth stage of the hero's journey. And I talked about that a minute ago. This is the tests, allies, enemies stage. And it's this stage that takes him up to the midpoint shift. And yes, that is exactly what happens in Back to the Future. 
As soon as Marty enters 1955, he is tested. In 1985, Marty was in the parking lot of the Twin Pines Mall. But in 1955, that location is Peabody's farm. So when he crosses into the extraordinary world, he crashes into Peabody's barn. And Peabody gets his shotgun and shoots at Marty. So Marty's got to get out of there. That is a test. Uh, By the way, Peabody also acts like a threshold guardian. And he does not want Marty there. Marty does not belong. So the tests in this tests allies enemy stage are the challenges or obstacles that the hero runs into. Now he approaches them the same way he'd approach the challenge uh, if it happened to him in his own world. In this example, you know, Marty talks to Farmer Peabody because in his world, 1985, you ask for help. That is normal. Getting shot at is not normal. But in the extraordinary world of 1955, it is normal for a farmer to pull a shotgun on anyone that they perceive as a threat or or, um, trespasser. These tests are also the progressive complications of a story. They're really important. Also in this stage, we need to introduce the allies and the enemies. And the biggest enemy, of course, here is Biff. But Biff has his minions, right, who are also enemies. And it's also the owner of the malt shop who's actually functioning as a stand-in for the 1955 society. Marty doesn't belong there, and everybody knows it. Okay, so what about allies? Well, those would be young George and young Lorraine. Doc is an ally too, but, you know, he's firmly in that mentor role. What I find most interesting is that the first half of the middle build, that would be uh, sequences three and four following the sequence work that Melanie did last season, that's taken up entirely by the George Lorraine love story subplot. Marty is the third point in the love triangle. Now at the midpoint, Marty finally meets up with Doc and he finds out that any interaction that he has with people in 1955 has the potential to change future events. Doc says, you must not leave this house. You must not see anybody or talk to anybody. Anything you do could have serious repercussions on future events. Well, this is a problem because Marty has already met his parents. He has already changed the course of future events. And as evidence, we have the photo of him and his siblings. And when we first see it, the older brother's hair is already going. (laughs) He's already disappearing from the future. So the midpoint, and it's almost always right on that 50% point. There's a little wiggle room. It might be 48%. It might be 52%. But wow, it's, it's, this is a game to play. Okay. When you're watching a movie, just watch it all the way through and then go back and put the scrubber at the halfway mark, and just watch what happens there. Nine times out of 10, 9.9 times out of 10, right at that 50% mark, something is going to happen to totally shift your character and the actions that are going on around your character. This is the midpoint shift. And here, the protagonist goes from sort of coping to not being able to cope at all. So in the first half of the middle... (laughs) This is hard to describe without a diagram, but in the first half of the middle, 
The hero is a fish out of water. He's a stranger in a strange land. He's muddling through as best he can. But the tests are escalating, and his situation is becoming more and more complicated and more difficult to manage. The shift that happens in the middle is like a tipping point. And after this point, the hero is just trying to keep his head above water. It's total chaos. He is flying by the seat of his pants and just trying to keep up. Fine. So how does this apply to Back to the Future? Well, I already talked about what the midpoint of the story is. So how does this throw Marty's world into chaos? How is it that he's just keeping his head above water? Well, from this point all the way to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, where George kisses Lorraine, everything that Marty tries, every effort he makes to get his parents back together, backfires. He is getting further and further away from his object of desire, which in the love story subplot is to get his parents back together. Now, I do want to mention a couple of points here. And honestly, I'm not sure if these are things that will work in any story or if they're just working here and back to the future or if back to the future is getting away with them because Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd are just so good. All right. So the first thing is that Marty doesn't do anything to save the day. It's George who decides all on his own to turn around and go back and kiss Lorraine. Oh God, I hope I'm not ruining this movie for anybody. That would be awful. That would be horrible. Just love this movie anyway, please. (laughs) So what typically what we expect is for the hero to be active and proactively go out and and triumph, right? And the reason that he does this is because he has changed somehow. He's learned something. He's taking a new approach. But in this moment, Marty is passive because the future is changing so much that now Marty's very existence is at risk. So Marty doesn't actually save the day. George does. The other thing is that The whole middle of this story is primarily subplot. The main story, which is getting back to the future, it takes a back seat. And in fact, it's Doc who's leading the charge there. Marty isn't doing anything to help get himself back to the future. Not really. And, you know, given the setup, there isn't anything he can do. Doc is the only one who has the scientific knowledge to pull it off. So Marty is forced to kind of wait for Doc to do his work. And and they're they're forced to wait for a week for the lightning to strike the clock. Now, that said, the subplot is directly tied to the main plot. It's not like it's a completely different storyline. And the last thing that I want to mention is the Johnny B. Good scene. It's not really a scene. The bit. (laughs) Uh, It's superfluous. It doesn't reveal character. It doesn't advance the plot. It's just fun. It is pure entertainment. And it's a bit of a, an in-joke for the audience, right? And I really think that if it wasn't for Michael J. Fox's charm on screen, this you know scene, quote-unquote scene, would have just slowed the pacing of the story down. I think it would have totally done a face plant. But I think it's Michael J. Fox we're enjoying there, not um, anything else really. All right. So there is a whole lot more I could say about the middle of Back to the Future, but I think that's probably enough for now. And, you know, one thing that I have discovered so far 
uh, you know, we're at the fifth episode of the season. And what I've discovered is that this is actually a much bigger topic <laughs> than I can cover even in 10 episodes of a podcast. <laughs> so what I'm doing is putting together a series of webinars uh, that I'll put off in spring 23. And I'm going to go into the beginning, middle, and end even more there. So if that's something that's of interest to you and you want to be notified about when they're happening, sign up to my inner circle, valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle, because I'll be telling the folks in my inner circle first all about it. Uh, and I know I said that was the last thing, but I do have one, one last, last thing before I hand it over to you, Melanie. Uh, and that's a note about exposition. I want to draw your attention to how expertly exposition is handled in the first act of Back to the Future. So if you want to learn more about how to do exposition properly, this is a really good example to study. Okay, Melanie, I promise. Now it's over to you. What have you learned about subtext this week? Oh, well, just before I go on to subtext, I just want to say that sometimes I think this movie mirrors us doing the podcast because you're in Thursday and I'm in Friday when we do the recording. So we are we are examples of I wouldn't say time travel, but <laughs> but time and um and the consequences of time. <laughs> and I'll just add that what you, what you there's a really good episode in the Big Big Bang Theory where Amy ruins Raiders of the Lost Ark for Sheldon. And it's exactly the same thing because really what she says is that Indiana Jones, after having gone all through all this move, you know, all this action, actually has no impact on the outcomes of the movie. And it, it just reminded me of that. But does it mean it ruins the movie? I don't think so. It's still a good ride. So I don't think what you've said there has ruined the movie at all. <laughs> In case you were worried about that. <laughs> all right. All right. Now, this uh, week, I wanted to explore or find indicators of subtext, such as swerves in the protagonist's conversation and whether or not other characters notice that. And also, if understanding Marty's backstory was essential to understanding the subtext in the movie. But because Marty travels back in time, we must see him in his contemporary setting to understand how the past is different. So the contemporary setting is his backstory and it's right there for us to see. We also know that he must hide his true identity when he does go back to 1955, which means the audience is aware of why the swerves in conversation occur even if the other characters don't understand why they're happening. So that was a bit of a fail for me right up front. However, the use of time in an overt and covert way caught my attention instead. So I'm going to spend some time looking at how time is used at all levels of the story to reinforce the idea of time travel and a ticking clock to add suspense. But before I do that, I want to draw your attention to the opening scene of the movie where the camera moves through Doc's home. So the first minutes are spent scanning or over all the clocks on Doc's wall and there are quite a few and they are all set to the same time, which is 8.53am. Now the camera scans then to two newspaper clippings, one with the headline, Brown Estate Sold to Developers, Bankrupt Investor Sells Off 135 Prime Acres. 
The other says, or the other headline is, Brown Mansion Destroyed. Then there are photos in frames of Isaac Newton, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Edison and Albert Einstein, who are all inventors and all scientists. We hear the radio and pan to see a coffee machine with no jug there and then the news starts with a report about stolen uh, stolen plutonium. Burnt toast pops up, the automatic dog feeder is overflowing and there isn't a person or a dog in sight until Marty opens the door. And this is two minutes and 30 seconds and we see and take in a lot. So this opening scene tells us a great deal about the movie and about Doc Brown in a Doc Brown in particular. Time is obsessively important to Doc. He's an inventor, he has a dog called Einstein, and he's a fan of famous scientific inventors. We also get the feeling that he has something to do with the missing plutonium, and there's something wrong or not typical going on in the house. So when Marty arrives and calls out for Doc, our suspicions are confirmed. Then Doc has a strange phone call to his vacant home and then the conversation with Marty also confirms that Doc is acting strangely for a strange person. He's even acting more strangely than usual. So all the clocks then go off, all their alarms go off, and Doc tells Marty his clocks are exactly 25 minutes slow and he celebrates this because it means his experiment with clocks and therefore time has worked. And so we know then that Doc is not scared to play with time. So all of the clues are set up for us in this opening scene. Even the importance of the photos as a signifier of interference in the time-space continuum is there for us to see right at the beginning of the movie. Now, a similar thing also happened in Home Alone. All of the clues about the story and what to expect were set up in the first five or so minutes of the movie. And this, I think, is good storytelling and an excellent use of subtext because everything in this scene has a meaning. We may not know what the meaning is at the start, but we definitely do by the end of the movie because we understand the meaning and the information in the context of the story. So, Valerie, I just want to pause there. And did you notice anything about that at the beginning of the movie or in that particular opening sequence? Yes, it is an excellent opening. And, you know, the beginning of our stories is so important. Yes, the whole first act is important, but we've got, you know, 10 pages. I'm being very generous. I'm saying 10 pages because that is what will show up typically in a uh, free preview on Amazon. That's typically what agents look for in a submission. Agents will probably give you 10 pages because they really want to find a great writer. The reality, though, is that 10 pages is super generous. The more research I've done into this, the more I'm hearing five pages or three pages or a paragraph. That is a pretty high bar. And don't worry about doing it on your first run through. That way madness lies. That's the kind of refining that you do in the editing process. 
So I don't know how they put Back to the Future together. But my guess is when Bob Gale wrote the script, this was not how the opening scene looked on his first draft. It was only when he finished the whole story that he thought, okay, how can I now set up this story in the opening? So pay a lot of attention to the first, you know, three pages, first paragraph for sure, um, first three pages for sure, and first five and first 10 pages. They've, they've got to be polished. They've got to be sparkling. They really have to set up the story that follows. Yeah, and I think when you find good examples like this, they're ones that are worth noting and, and holding on to. And I know it's a visual medium um, and we're writers, but it is good to have examples even in a visual medium and see what happened and see what it is that you can derive from that to do a, a, a similar thing. All right. Oh, yeah, did you want to add something else? Yeah, just before you go on, I want to pop in there. This does apply to novels as well. Gone Girl is an excellent example of it. And there are other examples. Anthony Horowitz is very good at this. Um, he's very good at a lot of things. I really like his writing. <laughs> the, this, the, the clues, the whole story is summed up in that beginning. We talked a little bit about this when we did The Matrix as well. Yes, yeah. And there was a line that we were looking at in Matrix. Yeah, we did. Right. So you kind of got to write the whole story and then come back and rework your beginning, right? Start wherever you need to start in your novel. Like wherever the idea comes to me, I kind of start from there and I might write forward and I might write backward. Like it doesn't come to me in a linear way, unfortunately. So, but, but it does like, even if it did come in a linear way, when I got to the end, I would still have to come back and polish the beginning and make sure that it is a beginning that sets up everything that's to follow. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. All right. So, and again, the setup of the the movie, particularly that first frame with all of those clocks, gives us an indication of how time is the most important topic of the movie, and especially in the in the text and the subtext. And it it really features quite heavily in that beginning hook of the story in the contemporary world. And here are some examples of what I mean. So after that initial sequence, Marty is late for school because, and he didn't realise because Doc had his clocks set 25 minutes slow. And then he arrives at school and he gets four tardies and it's the fourth one in a row. So, and then after the band is rejected, Marty and Jennifer are walking past the clock tower where ladies are canvassing to save the clock tower and they link their campaign to history and heritage which are related to time in the past. So in some ways, they want to make time stand still. Seriously, time is referred to everywhere in the dialogue in the beginning hook. Marty's mum even says that when she uh, says that when she first kissed his father, she knew she would spend the rest of her life with him. And it's these subtle references that have time underneath them that really are carried through through most of the story. Now, some of this is all set up, but other parts of it are reinforcing the theme and the importance of time to the rest of the story. When we move into the middle section, 
the larger units of time start to be more at the forefront of the story because Marty has gone back 30 years in time. So Marty's existence in the past and his interactions with his mother and father put his future existence, as well as his brothers and sisters, into jeopardy. The photos of his siblings and their gradual disappearance from it is a good way to up the stakes and to deal with one of the potential complications of time travel. And can I just say, thinking about time travel and the conundrums it presents really does my head in. (laughs) You know, things like, can the same person exist twice in the same point in time? Those sorts of things. And if only time travel were as simple in real life as it was portrayed in Back to the Future. Ah, it really messes with my mind. Anyway, it's also worth noting that the four photos in Doc's home at the beginning of the film have not altered over the 30 years between Marty's first visit to 1955 and then his actual life in 1985. And this perhaps signifies that Doc has not travelled back in time to meet his heroes because the photos are intact and if he had gone back to meet them, would it have, sta- would it have changed the time-space continuum? Now, the immediate time pressures and the focus on the minute-by-minute time starts to re-enter the movie during the ending payoff. When Marty and Doc are trying to give the DeLorean the power it needs to get Marty back to the future. So the ticking clock becomes literal at the end of the movie, and there are small and big obstacles placed in Doc and Marty's way. So the engine cuts out on the DeLorean, Doc can't get the power cable connected, the alarm goes off, the tree branch has shortened the cable so that Doc can't get the power points connected. All of those things. So for the ending to work, all the timing has to come together. We also see Marty deliberately trying to save Doc's life in the future by telling the 1955 Doc about what happens in the car park. And this nice is a nice touch and it does pay off at the when Doc dies at the beginning. And oh, oh. I do want to say something about the DeLorean. So if if you don't know what a DeLorean is, it is it was the model of car, obviously that's the time machine in Back to the Future, and it is the only model produced by the DeLorean Motor Company. Its panels are made of stainless steel, and so that was the only colour the car came in, and it was known for its lack of power and performance. So it's quite an ironic car in its own existence as a sports car. And the DeLorean is literally a time machine. And it's a perfect choice of car to make into the time machine because it never evolved. It is a representation of the preservation of history and heritage. Although none of this is actually stated in the movie, but it is there and people who know about the DeLorean know about its significance as well. Now, before I wrap up, there's another good example of how subtext is used in this story. Repetition can be used to draw parallels between characters, especially when they don't look like each other. And just think back to when Marty's band is rejected. He tells Jennifer that he doesn't want to send in his demo tape because he just doesn't think he can handle that type of rejection. 
Later in the movie, after we've seen how Marty's dad is treated by Biff in the future and in the past, and we see Marty encouraging his father to ask his mother out, George says, I just don't think I can take that kind of rejection. So Marty sees the parallels between him and his father. Both are responsible to a point for their own destiny and they are both scared of rejection. And this is implied rather than stated outright and we understand what's going on in Marty's mind by the com- and the comparison that he's making between him and his father. So time is layered all the way through this movie and it comes in and out of focus at certain points. Macro and micro time also are used to great effect. And there, is, there has also been careful selection of dialogue, setting, props and relevant events at, that centre around the concept of time and time travel. Now, I did make comprehensive notes about time from this movie and I haven't used all of the references that I made in, in what I've put forward today. But the list is very impressive when you start to pay attention to it and it is a good lesson on how to centre a theme and then layer in many different aspects of that theme into a story. So, Valerie, what action steps do you have for us today? All right, this week what I want you to do is look at how you've opened up the second act of your story. Have you tested your hero right away? If not, how long does it take before she's faced with some kind of new challenge? Because if you wait too long to test her, you're going to lose your reader. All right, so that wraps it up for this week. Join us next week when we discuss Skyfall. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and help us spread the word by telling your writer friends about us. And feel free to like and share our social media posts too. For even more information about putting story theory into practice, subscribe to Valerie's Inner Circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. If you'd like to find more out about me, visit melaniehill.com.au or find me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram under Melanie Hill Author. And remember, story theory doesn't have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm